0: Hymns like that are always hard to follow. The simple, such beauty. What deep truth. I am the Lord's. And He is mine. What a gorgeous hymn. It's a, I might comment, most of the people heard who was speaking. That's why they're not here this morning. Nah. (laughs) No, all, all kidding aside, what a glorious thing that so many have gone out, many for work of the Lord. What a glorious thing to see the young people out and growing, seeking to have fellowship one with another. That's why we gather together, not to build an edifice here, we do come together to worship and to glory in the one who has bought us. But we also come together to exhort one another, build one another up, and go out and reach the lost. Before I start the message, I would mention that the, the open-air preaching team last night had the paint board down at Balboa Pier, and there was a family of four who came to know Christ. One of our dear sisters from the Buena Park meeting started a conversation with them Um, and then one of the other sisters who was was fluent in Spanish ended up taking it over and we have a family of four who uh, entered the race last night are now in the Savior. not only do they know God but they are as it says in Galatians 4 known of God Um, I'm going to speak this morning and this evening Lord willing on uh, word pictures you know the scripture is full of Uh, Historical references, but it's much more than history. God speaks to us, and He paints these rich pictures that transcend just the recording of the actual event. You know, prophecy to the to the Gentile mind, the Greek mind, the Western mind is prediction and fulfillment. You you say something's going to happen, and then it happens. to To us, that's prophecy. To the Hebrew mind, they go much. Beyond that, they look at patterns, and they see in these patterns, again, the immutability of God, that he is unchanging. And they can take this pattern and see that, though some of the details may change, the very heart and nature of God is that that's how he's going to deal with mankind in the future, and these things speak in great beauty of how God deals with mankind so I'm going to cover two different messages, one this morning and again another one tonight. You know, I've, I've, I don't know I've said it from the platform, but I've said it to many of you before. and course, won't stop me from repeating it. Uh, but there are essentially are two messages the world does not want to receive. And we'll divide the world into two. Uh, the first one, the unsaved world. The world is not headed towards heaven. The message that by and large they do not want to receive is that they have a need for a savior. Now the others, the, in the world that don't want to receive a message. They're saved and they are headed towards heaven. They don't want to receive the message that disobedience is costly. Uh, both messages are essential, but if they only grasp one, of course, they must have a Savior because all the works in the world are worthless if they depart this life without a Savior. So tonight, uh, this morning, we'll speak to the first issue tonight lord willing we'll speak to the second let's turn to 2nd samuel chapter 9 and while you're doing that i'll remind you that the apostle paul said in romans 15 for for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and encouragement of the scripture we might have hope today there's many churches that don't spend much time in the old testament if you ask them why they say well it's old but, in, you know, as I've said before, the Old Testament is in the New Testament con- revealed, and the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. We read both because they give us understanding and help us to interpret. And, you know, the Apostle Paul said on the, the beach there at Miletus when he talked to the elders from Ephesus, said, I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I've taught the whole counsel of God. And before I start reading from Second Samuel chapter 9, I'm going to read one verse uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 4 and it'll introduce us to the person about whom we're going to talk this morning and see this picture uh, yeah. the background King Saul is the, the king over Israel and he started very well but well he finished terribly as a matter of fact the day before this event that we're going to read about right now God had stopped speaking to him and he actually went to a witch and was seeking to call up the prophet Samuel from the grave And God did send the prophet Samuel, and he said, he castigated Saul for his disobedience. And he told him, tomorrow, you you and your son will be with me here in paradise. You know, I had somebody ask me a couple weeks ago, do you think Saul's going to be in heaven? I'm not sure, but according to what Samuel said, it sounds like it. Tomorrow, you'll be with me in paradise. That's maybe, again, another support for that, what's often hurled as an insult, but that is very true, once saved, always saved, or not. I wouldn't be dogmatic about it, but because of his disobedience, Saul is going to die. And we're going to read about uh, that day. 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. And he was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Jonathan was the crown prince. The, the right of succession was supposed to be the scepter would pass from Saul to Jonathan. And we're going to read a little bit more about that and see a picture that on the surface doesn't seem to make sense. Yet it speaks to love and sacrifice and bending to the will of God going to 2 Samuel chapter 9 starting with verse 1 after Saul's death David becomes king the one to whom God had said to Saul I'm going to rip the kingdom from you and give it to one more worthy Uh, David is king and it was the custom of that day for a king to kill all of the family of the preceding king especially if they weren't in the same family Sometimes even in the same family. But David as king, he says, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He wants to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? He wants to show kindness for two reasons. He wants to show his kindness because of Jonathan, and he wants to show the kindness of God. Continuing verse 3 there, And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. The focus there, well, there's a son. It's crippled in both feet. Doesn't even give him his name. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Mature, the son of Ammiel and Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mature, the son of Ammiel, from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, Came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. Perhaps in fear and terror. As he lay on the ground before the king, he realized he was nothing and might be facing death. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Here is your servant. But David said to him, Do not fear. For I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and will restore to you all of your grandfather, all the land of your grandfather, Saul. And you shall eat regularly at my table. Again, he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? The king doesn't answer him. The text continues, Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly." Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. You know, that's a that's a nice story and comforting for the kindness that was shown. If we know a little more of the background, it becomes puzzling. Although David had great respect, you might even say love, For Saul, Saul considered David to be his arch enemy. Why would he do that? Well, we know that as a young shepherd boy, when the armies of Israel were arrayed against the armies of the Philistines and that giant Goliath stood out and taunted the king, the army, and mocked the living God, David, as a young shepherd boy, slew that giant with a sling and a stone. And that day, the armies of the Israelites, who had been terrified, marched forth and subdued, decimated the army of the Philistines. And in the celebration, the women sang a song. Saul has killed his thousands, but they followed up with, but David has killed his tens of thousands. That enraged Saul, and it inflamed in him a jealousy which seems to have driven him mad. He spent most of the rest of his life pursuing David to kill the one who was a faithful servant to him. But when David becomes king, he doesn't use his power to, in an evil fashion, rather, as Paul would warn us in Romans. He uses good to overcome evil. There's more background to this yet. If you go to the left in your Bible, back to 1 Samuel chapter 20 we'll read a little bit about the relationship between David and Jonathan. You see, Jonathan, as a crown prince, he knew the kingdom was going to pass to David, and he was okay with that, defying human logic. He loved David, and he was willing for the kingdom to go to David because not only did he love David, but his heart was in tune with the will of God. While Jonathan was alive, he was the crown prince. He had great power. He actually is seeking to protect David. He doesn't think his father's going to injure him, but he says, I'll find out and then I'll let you know. Well, he he finds out that his father is mad enough not only to kill David, but even to make an attempt on his life. So he goes to warn him. But here in in 1 Samuel chapter 20, we're going to read verses 14 to 17 and then jump to 42 again just to get a picture of this what sets a, a background for this marvelous display of kindness that David made towards Mephibosheth 1 Samuel chapter 20 verse 14 Jonathan speaking to David he says looking forward to when he knows David will be king if I am still alive will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord then I may not die He's pleading for his own life. But he goes on, You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Essentially saying, if you you ever uh, renege on this covenant, may the Lord empower your enemies to call you to judgment. Jonathan made David bow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Jumping down to verse 42, Jonathan, again the crown prince, sends David off with a blessing. Jonathan said to David, "'Go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other "'in the name of the Lord, saying, "'The Lord will be between me and you "'and between my descendants and your descendants forever.'" Then he rose and departed, while Jonathan went into the city. You know, it's ironic here, Jonathan has become a mediator between Saul and David. Certainly not with the permission of Saul. We see that there is a love between David and Jonathan, and they cement the love in a statement of of this covenant between their households. The passage we read in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, David is remembering this covenant that he made in 1 Samuel 20, verse 15. And this sets the stage for his behavior as he seeks to bless Mephibosheth. One theologian says, you know, David as monarch suggests to us God on his throne in heaven. Certainly David showing kindness to the family of his arch enemy, Foreshadows God's dealing with us in grace toward us as sinners. Well, I said this was about patterns. We're going to look at some patterns and the attributes of the one to whom David showed this extraordinary kindness paints a really good picture of us as sinners. Mephibosheth. Who would name her son Mephibosheth? And it's not just how it sounds to us. If you know what it means, a shameful thing. Literally, shame out of mouth. But the Lord led him to name the Mephibosheth. And he certainly is a picture of us. We're, we're as one unclean. You know, Isaiah 64, 6 says, we're like a leaf that's been dried up and our sins are like the wind that, that picks us up and blows us away. Now the verse does go on to say we're as one unclean. That's a picture of leprosy. Leprosy is really a, the, the perfect a picture of sin itself. You know, most lepers don't die of leprosy itself. They die of secondary causes. Leprosy is a, a, an insidious disease that slowly re- removes the ability of the body to feel pain. And so most lepers will gash themselves open or burn themselves or step on something They don't realize that they'll bleed out or a secondary infection will take over. And isn't that really the picture of sin? If we start to dabble in a sin, our conscience is pricked. We're in agony and pain over it. But as we continue on, we become numb to the feeling and we just don't realize the damage that's being done to us. Jeremiah says, The heart is desperately wicked, deceitful, beyond all repair who can know it. Well, fortunately, God can repair it, and he certainly knows it. Well, let's look at Mephibosheth. You know, he, he came from royal lineage, and we're of royal lineage. Originally, we were, were made in the image of God. Mephibosheth enjoyed living in the royal household. Well, Adam and Eve certainly enjoyed living in the presence of the king. They walked in the still of the, the cool of the day with, with, with God. Mephibosheth suffered a fall, In her haste to protect him and to protect her own life from those she thought would come to kill him, Mephibosheth falls. And of course, we're told in Genesis 3 that mankind has fallen. Mephibosheth was crippled by this fall. We were crippled by the fall in the garden. We're told that sin came into being through Adam, through unmanned sin and death, came to all mankind, Romans 5, 12. The result from Mephibosheth and the death of his father is that he flees. He's hiding and he's distant from the king. Adam and Eve hid in the garden seeing that now they were naked, parts of their body were not presentable. They grabbed fig leaves to cover it up and that probably adequately protected the visual view of what they were trying to hide. But God, seeing that, says that's not good enough. Can you imagine the horror of seeing the first death? God, can you understand, the first death occurred at the hands of God. Killed an animal that Adam had fellowship with. What a thought! It showed the price of sin. Killed that animal to get adequate coverings, and that's all it was—was was a covering. Why was Mephibosheth hiding? because he believed that David would kill him. Adam and Eve hid from God because they were ashamed and embarrassed. Today we often hide from God because we think he hates us. There's this picture the world has of, of God in heaven, an angry God waiting to smack them down. Mephibosheth was living with a family that was not his own, and we're living in a world that is not our own. Mephibosheth was not living in Jerusalem. Translated Jerusalem... Foundation of peace. You know, we're out of the garden, we're struggling to live, and we're certainly living in a world that has no peace. This world's clamoring for peace. They talk about peace in the headlines every day. There'll be no peace, so you say, "Till the prince of peace brings it. Mephibosheth was living in a place called Lo Debar, desolate. Literally, Lo Debar in Hebrew is No pasture. It's a land without provision for man or beast, or very meager provision. And we're living in a place where there is little food for soul or spirit in the world. David sent for Mephibosheth, and God sends for us. He calls us. No one can come to the Father, to come to the Son, unless the Father calls him. We're being called. Why did David call Mephibosheth? Because of the covenant, because of his love for Jonathan, and to demonstrate the love of God. God calls us because of his great love for his son and to show it's a kindness of God which leads us to repentance and to give us as a gift, a possession unto his son. David didn't call Mephibosheth because he had any value. He was lame. He couldn't lead troops in the battle. He couldn't tend a vineyard or a garden. He had no intrinsic value. There's no good in us. I've already talked a little bit about Isaiah 64, 6. You know, there's none good but God. Mephibosheth was not looking for David. He was afraid of him. And by and large, we're not looking for God. Again, we, again, we have to be called. We don't even have righteous acts to come present ourselves to God. But if we did, we even know that it's not by any righteous act that I have done, but by the mercy of God I'm saved. No, David brought Mephibosheth to himself by David's provision. And God has provided for us a way. Mephibosheth was lame, unable to go to God, and we're unable to go to God except he draws us to him. Well, what happened? Well, when Mephibosheth got to David, David blessed him. And God wants to bless us. That's the promise. What was the blessing? Well, instead of living in the place of no pasture, of desolation, he's now living in Jerusalem. Again, the foundation of peace. We get to live where God is with the Prince of Peace. Mephibosheth now eats at the king's table as a son. And we get to eat in his presence with The son, as adopted children, as many as received it, and it gave me power to become children of God, John tells us. If we develop a sight picture of Mephibosheth sitting at the king's table, where are his lame feet? They're under the covering, under the table, unseen. Our sins are more than just covered, they're gone as far as east is from west, utterly destroyed washed away by the blood of the Lamb. David provided ministers to take care of all that Mephibosheth has, and we're blessed forever. And he's even given us angels as ministering spirits. Well, again, all this has been a pleasant story, and it's got a happy ending. We could all go away uplifted, right? Peter says, if anybody speaks, let him speak the oracles of God. Paul said preach the word in season and out of season convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching again as Paul had said to the elders at Ephesus I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I've taught the full counsel of God we need to make sure we take out of the message the ramifications the blessing and the cursing Reminded, there's a story of an American Indian went into a distant city and went to a church service and the the preacher got up on the platform and uh, perhaps due to lack of preparation or lack of spirituality, there wasn't much meat there. Oh, he did a lot of shouting and he pounded the pulpit, but there wasn't anything of any spiritual matter to the message. Afterwards, somebody asked this Indian who was a devout Christian, what did you think of the message? And he thought a moment, and with six words, he summed it up. Big wind, big thunder, no rain. Nothing that brings forth life. Well, the Word of God is what brings forth life, right? That's what he tells us in Isaiah 55. Like, the rain and so I send upon the valleys and hills bring forth its abundance, seed for the sower, grain for the... We don't want to miss what it has to say to us or what the ramifications are. <clears throat> Today, the quote-unquote evangelical church wants to make people feel good. And sometimes they withhold the difficult parts of the message. You now, I like there's a, those of you that know me will understand why I chose this example here, this illustration. Ray Comfort has a little um, thing he talks about, the importance of how you deliver a message and how it's received. And it goes this way. It says, you board an airliner, and you walk in the door, and you go back towards your seat. And as you're getting ready to sit down in this beautiful, luxurious seat that a marvel of comfort, you realize there's a flight crew member standing next to you, holding out this object. It says, here, take this, put it on. What's that? What's a parachute? What do I need that for? Oh, trust me, you'll, you, your flight will be a lot more enjoyable. You'll enjoy the flight if you put this on. I'll enjoy it more with... Yes. Oh, okay. So, thinking the flight crew knows what they're talking about, he puts it on. But the problem is, as you know, many of you know, I fall out of planes on a regular basis. A parachute is not an item of comfort apparel. You don't wear it for comfort, especially if you're going to sit down. So this gentleman tries to sit down in the seat but this parachute is making him very uncomfortable and he's squirming, trying to get into the seat that he knows should be very comforting. But it's more than just his physical discomfort. All of a sudden he becomes aware that everybody in the plane is looking at him and laughing at him, even mocking him because they're not wearing parachutes. He finally throws it to the ground, slinks into the seat and says, they liked him. Well, that's the message that's delivered often today. You see a a very good-looking young man on TV holds up something that looks like a Bible, and he says, I mean, it's just a commentary in the message, but he says, God wants you to have a faster car and a bigger house and a great bank account and good health, and he wants you to have your best life now. And he's talking about comfort of the world. And however nice he is, that's a message from the pit of hell. What if that little story about the airliner went this way? You get on the airliner, you walk back to your seat, and as you're about to sit down, you realize a crew member is there saying, put this on. Well, what is it? It's a parachute. What do I need that for? Well, it's a very important piece of equipment. And by now, you're taxiing out towards the runway. So put it on quick, you're going to need it, because in about 13 or 14 minutes, we'll be at 15,000 feet. That door is going to open, and you are going out that door. Everybody's going out the door. There wouldn't be any worry about physical comfort. Not only would you put that parachute on, you would plead to know how to use it. Because all that fills your mind is the thought that what would happen to me if I left this aircraft without the parachute? I often joke you don't need a parachute to skydive. But you better have one if you want to jump more than once. And I often use skydiving in preaching the gospel because it is a perfect picture. We have a a perfect record in skydiving. We don't leave anybody in the air. They all make it to the ground. And just like that, nobody leaves this life physically alive. Well, I want to finish up by talking about what God says to us. And there's many things God says to us, but I want to go over seven things that God says to every human being. He says that he loves, he loves you. He says, I love you. We know that famous verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What does it mean that He gave His Son? Well, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for. it's difficult to really picture what that's saying. He didn't die for us because we were lovable. He died for us when we were the enemy. It's really quite incredible. I could tell you about somebody who gave his life in battle. Time for the many club not what God did. It'd be more like this young man, Mike, running outside and falling on the grenade to save the life of the man who threw it. That's love. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. That's what he says, I love you. The second thing he says is, I know everything about you. There's nothing hidden. In Ezekiel 11, verse 5, he says, This is what the Lord says. That is what you are thinking, house of Israel. And I know the thoughts that arise in your mind. Two more verses. It would be frightening if they weren't from the God of all love. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. Third thing God says is, you have an appointment with me. You are going out that door. He hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Acts 17, 31. Of course, Hebrews 9, 27, our brother mentioned it this morning. And as it is appointed unto men, once to die, but after this, the judgment. Going back to 2 Samuel, the 14th chapter of the 14th verse, starts with a frightening statement. For we will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. This isn't like a video game. There's no reset button. You don't get to do it over again. Well, we're going to take that verse and that thought and we're going to go to the fourth thing that God says and pick right up where it left off. The fourth thing God says is, you know, in spite of your appointment with death, you can be with me forever. Well, if 2 Samuel 14, 14 starts out with, For we will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. It goes on with this glorious statement. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. What a glorious thought. Deserving to be banished, yet you don't have to be cast out. For God sent not a son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 3.17 Jesus in John 5.24, truly, truly, I say unto you, if you hear my words and believe him who sent me, you'll have everlasting life. Will not come into judgment, but have already passed from death unto life. Well, the next thing that God says to us almost seems like it's contradicting what was just said. But God says this your sins will cause me to cast you into the lake of fire forever. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation, chapter 20, verse 15. The great white throne judgment. Jesus gave warning in Luke 12, verse 5. He says, but I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Parallel verses found over in uh, Matthew 10, verse 28. Verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Why can he cast somebody into hell? Well all souls belong to him. Ezekiel 18.4 Behold all souls are mine. The soul of the father and the soul of the son. All souls are mine. The soul that sins that soul must die. i often speak on how God is an accountant and he's a perfect accountant. He knows where everything is hidden, as we've already read. But as a perfect accountant, every account is going to be settled perfectly. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Those wages are going to be paid out. We've all sinned. We all deserve death. But we're going to take that verse and that thought and carry it to the sixth thing that God says and develop that further. Because God says to each of us, you know, there's only one payment required for your sin. And there's only one payment for your sin that I will accept. If Romans 6.23 starts off with that frightening truth, for the wages of sin is death, it finishes with, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Free gift. What is a free gift? Well, it's it's not free to the one who's giving it, is it? Otherwise, it wouldn't be much of a gift. No, this one costs the blood of the Lamb of God. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 1 John 1.7 tells us, who In the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And he looks on Jesus and sees that his blood has paid for my sin as a perfect accountant and a perfectly honest account he won't accept the second payment. We're told he who has the son has life. He who hath not the son does not have the life. 1 John 5.12 What is the life? Jesus tells us that too. John 14.6 I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Pretty narrow. The seventh thing God says to everybody here on the face of the earth is this. He says, if you confess to me that you're a sinner and accept my son as your Savior, trust in his completed work, you will have forgiveness and you will have eternal life. Again, going back to that verse I quoted from Jesus in John five twenty four, Truly, truly, I say unto you, if you hear my word and believe in him who sent me, he has eternal life. It's an already possession and does not come into judgment. So you do not have to worry about Revelation chapter 20, verse 15 being cast into the lake of fire. But have already passed from death into life. And we're told if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Heaven is a real place. So is the lake of fire. Incredibly, which one we spend eternity in is our choice. Because God sovereignly sets aside his sovereignty and lets us make the decision. He calls to all. 1 Timothy 2 verse 3 and 3 and 4. This is good and well pleasing to God our Savior, who wills all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I often have people tell me out on the street, I could never believe in a God who would cast people into hell, throw people into hell. And I said, in you know, the way you're saying it, I wouldn't believe in a God like that either. Because he does not just throw anybody into hell. He tries to keep him from there, but what he does do is honor our decision in refusal of Christ. It's an overt statement that I'm going to do it my way. You're telling him, I would rather go to hell than to go to heaven according to your rules. Well, today is the day of salvation, and we need to to choose what we'll do with this information, with this incredible picture we have in Mephibosheth, in the, the truth and power of the Word, in the warnings about the consequences if you go out of the door of the aircraft without a parachute uh, the results are predictable the analogy breaks down a little bit because you can go out with a parachute and still perish but you will not leave this life and perish if you leave this life with Christ if you're hidden in Christ with God you've been made new unto life. That's a promise. We know that we can uh, depend upon the one that we have put our faith in. He is faithful. But what do we have to do functionally to be right with God, to be in Christ, to take advantage of this gift that's been given to us? Well, you've already been given the tools. God has put a conscience inside every one of us. And all we need to do is listen to that conscience. We know we're not perfect, and we understand that God is. And the idea is this. If you're imperfect and God's perfect, you can't join Him. Imperfection can't exist in His presence. And I could be perfect from now to whenever I die, and it wouldn't matter because I couldn't make my imperfection from this morning yesterday or last week, go away. But in my conscience, I've heard what God said, if you confess to me that you're a sinner and accept my son, you'll be saved. So I just need to listen to my my conscience and and tell God, you're right, I'm a sinner, I deserve death. But you said you love me and want me in heaven and I believe you. I believe that you sent your son to die and that by the shedding of his blood, my sins were paid for. You know, Paul points out a dead man can't sin. You know, if one died for all, we were convinced that all have died and we've died in Christ. Paul says, it's not me living, it's Christ living in me. William Macdonald I think he said it this way, he says, Christ didn't just die for me, he died as me. Meaning that as if I were being punished for my sins, He bore the punishment that I should have endured. Thereby, God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. The sins were paid for. God doesn't have to ignore them. You know, Romans 4.25 says that Christ was delivered up because of our transgressions, but he was resurrected because of our justification. This makes true of the statement which Jesus gives us in Revelation 1.18. He says, I was dead. He says, but hold on, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys to hell and death. His resurrection is proof that God accepted the sacrifice, that God indeed has power over over death. That's the last foe that will be defeated. All we have to do is ask for that forgiveness, recognize our condition, trust that the finished work of Christ can redeem us and confess with our mouth we should tell people first off to bear witness of what's been done for us and then to alert them to the danger put on the parachute be a Mephibosheth come to the king's table I don't know if Mephibosheth could have avoided David I think eventually he would have been there people think they can avoid God tell them all roads lead to God But one of two places, the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment. According to the pattern we've talked about this morning, be a Mephibosheth. Eat at the king's table. If there's anybody here, if we listen to this, who does not know what's going to happen to you when you die, it's not safe for you to go out that door. It's not safe for you to die. Let's talk. You need to make sure that you're in Christ, that you're a Mephibosheth eating at the king's table. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these rich word pictures and patterns which you've provided for us that we might more fully understand you. It's still beyond our ability to grasp. Again, what manner of love is this that you've bestowed upon us that we should become your sons. We're woeful creatures, and yet your love and redemption through your Son has made us glorious. He's he's shared this with us, this gift of life. We praise you, Father, for your willingness to send your Son, and we praise you, Lord Jesus, for your joy and enduring the shame and despising the cross because you saw what it would accomplish the salvation the recovery of mankind for all who would put their faith in you we pray that you would strengthen us now, cause this message which we're so familiar with to burn in our hearts Give us open doors to share it with others, to share the good news, to look towards eternity and labor while it is yet day that many more might come to know you as Savior, that many more might come to know true life, that many more might eat at your table, that many more might become children of the living God. We praise you. We thank you in the name of Jesus our Savior.